Once again, I want to welcome all of you that are watching, uh, either in the uh, uh, on the church app or uh, on Facebook or Vimeo. We are so thankful to have you with us today. I hope that you've been worshiping with us. A very special time of worship. Songs that, uh, that really stir our hearts. I've been saying that a lot, stirring. Uh, we need to be stirred by the things that the Lord is doing for us today. Our focus this morning is going to be on Job chapter 19, verses 22 through 27. I've entitled this using a statement that Job himself makes in verse 25 when he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. I don't know how many of us realize this or not, but nothing just happens. To a believer. Nothing just happens to a believer. When we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we come to the realization that there is no happenstance. Things just don't happen. Everything happens for a reason. If we see it in anyone in the scriptures, and we see it in a lot of uh, the uh, Bible characters, of course, but if we see it, in the most deep way possible, we see it in the life of a man named Job. Job. When you consider the name Job, the Hebrew uh, name is Leob, which means hate, hated and persecuted. What a name to name a child. <laughs> hated and persecuted makes us realize the importance of God naming us. As he named, his, as he named Jacob, Yaakov, the supplanter, who actually became a supplanter, and one who uh, was a heel catcher. Job comes from a, another Hebrew word, ayav, which actually means to be hostile to as an enemy. We'll find an enemy in this particular account as you read through all of the book of Job, and of course we're not going to do that today. But this is the reason why I wanted to deal with this today, because it is something that we should have some real deep sense of of understanding as we see what is happening around us in this world. A lot of people are being challenged by what is going on. A lot of people's faith is being challenged. Job, we know from the very beginning of that book, in chapter 1, is called perfect and upright, a man that feared God and eschewed evil, stayed away from evil, hated evil. 
That is certainly the, way, the case for every person who believes and, and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect and complete. We are to be upright in the way that we live. For we are to reflect the love of Jesus Christ in our lives. So here was a man who stood as an example of faithfulness in the midst of losing everything important to him. And yet remain faithful to God. This wonderful book of, uh, of Hebrew poetry illustrates God's sovereignty and his faithfulness during times of great suffering and uncertainty. Here was a man who God allowed to be directly attacked by Satan. Which again opens up another uh, picture of how nothing just happens to a believer. Tested through the allowance of Satan's attacks by God. Losing all, including his health, his wealth, and his family. Job remained faithful. Saying, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. After losing all. Losing all of his wealth, his livestock, and even his children. And yet we're told that in all of this, Job said not, nor charged God foolishly. We think about that for a moment. How sometimes things happen to us or happen to somebody in our families. And the first thing we do is we charge God foolishly. But Job did not. After having lost everything, he did not. Reveals a tremendous heart for God. And trust in God. And had knowledge that nothing just happens to a believer. To his wife who mocked his integrity in the second chapter. To his wife who mocked his integrity and told him to curse God and die. Job said, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And then it goes on to say, And all of this did not Job sin with his lips. Chapter 2, verse 10. For the next 34 chapters, Job has to deal with the bad advice of friends. Three friends in particular who come and sit with him for seven days, not opening their mouths, doing what was customary, to grieve with a person who who not only lost all, but one who had suffered in his own person. For seven days they were silent, but the eighth day, They opened their mouths to a lot of problems. Later on, another person, Elihu, would come and share his own thoughts toward Job. But it was these three who blamed Job's sufferings on his own personal sins rather than the Lord trying and testing and growing Job by that allowance that he gave to Satan. When the sons of God came together and Satan came along 
And how interesting when you think about how it was God who said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Perhaps the greatest test was upon Satan himself, thinking that he could outdo God. But that's for another time. It is now by the 19th chapter that Job speaks to his friends. And he begins in verse 21, our text for today, saying, Have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. And then Job makes this great, great statement, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold. And not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now, if there's one thing that we can see in this passage of Scripture, it is the pure confidence and trust that Job had in the Lord God, although he was going through tremendous trials and troubles and tribulations. James spoke about the patience of Job and when he states in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, he says, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, or the farmer, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receiveth the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. It is drawing ever near. It is drawing near for us. Be patient. Establish your hearts. And then James says this to believers. Understand this. He says, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. That is a powerful statement. He says, behold, the judge standeth before the door. Don't take everything for granted. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. The prophets themselves suffered tremendous affliction for serving God the way they did, for serving God honestly, for serving God completely. But then he says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. You have seen the goal of the Lord in what has happened to Job. That the Lord is very pitiful, that he's full of pity and of tender mercy. What a testament it was for Job to know that his God who allowed him to go through so much, was tender in his mercies toward Job. 
The prophet Ezekiel mentions not only Job, but also Daniel and Noah, and he does so because they were known for their righteousness in the midst of very trying times and situations. There's a theme here that we need to pick up on as we're considering the days and times in which we're living now. But Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14 verses 12 to 14 says, The word of the Lord came again unto me, or came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it, and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, notice Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Though these three men were in it at times when God was bringing great judgment upon the earth. To Noah, when man had sinned wickedly and God said he's going to destroy the earth. Or Daniel, at the time when the children of Israel were, uh, and Judah were, of course, being persecuted. In Babylon. And then of course Job. Going through what he went through. He says they should deliver but their own souls. By their righteousness. You know nobody gets into heaven. On somebody else's ticket. Somebody once said there are no grandchildren in heaven. They're only sons and daughters of God. Grandchildren don't come in based on what their parents do. Ezekiel goes on and mentions other scenarios of judgment. And then he says in verses 19 and 20, or if I send a pestilence into that land. Folks, there's a pestilence in the land today that many people are afraid of. So think, if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast... Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. Interesting enough to me that Ezekiel doesn't mention David. He doesn't mention Abraham or Adam. While he could have. David went through his trials, as did Abraham and, of course, Adam. Being the man who sinned before God, the first. He doesn't mention them. He mentions Job. And Job obviously made an impression on this prophet as he did on many people. And he should be making that impression on our hearts and minds today. A man like Job, who remained faithful in the midst of all the trials that were thrown at him. I've heard so many people say, oh, I must have lived a terrible life. God is judging me. There may be some some truth to the fact that God does judge some people, but when it becomes a believer or when it comes to a believer saying, oh, you know, maybe I'm not where I need to be with God. We need to take that into consideration. Look at Job. You can remain faithful in the midst of whatever trial is going on. And not not every trial is a judgment. 
But every trial is a test. It is a purification. It is something that gets us, in a sense, really nearer to God when you think about it. Draw near to God, James said, by the way, and he shall draw near to you. Draw near to God. So what Job was saying essentially in verse 25, going back to our text in chapter 19 of Job, should matter greatly to us as we're going through one of the most challenging times and one of the most challenging experiences with with this coronavirus scare. And take to heart that he said, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. What great theology Job had, had known more than 4,000 years ago. That was great theology. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Job knew that there was coming a day when the Lord would stand upon the earth. And as our Redeemer, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he is the one who's going to come and stand on this earth one day. And we as believers in Jesus Christ, wherever we may be in the sense of being with him as he comes to establish his kingdom, or when we meet him in the air seven years before all of that, when he comes to take us home. As our Redeemer, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not only our Redeemer, is not only the one who has paid the price to buy us back But Jesus Christ is our avenger as well, as our redeemer against our spiritual enemy who seeks to destroy us as he sought to destroy Job. Consider that not one person who has ever lived on this earth can honestly ever accuse and condemn our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, everybody tries, but they have never been successful because they've never done it honestly. They've never done it according, it certainly can't do it according and based upon the truth of the Bible and the scriptures. Can't do it. No one can honestly ever accuse and condemn our Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever the enemy of our souls may throw at us, the Lord always has an answer for. He always has an answer for. Consider Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39 where, he, where Paul says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, Who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Now notice verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Whether it is condemning Jesus himself or whether it is condemning us as the believers in Jesus Christ. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And you could add all kinds of things, or virus, or pestilence. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 
more than conquerors. And then Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Well, that pretty much covers everything, don't you think? You're either dead or you're alive. So for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what Job went through, for the number of years that he would go through it. And those, Job struggled with his own questions, with his own thoughts. When he struggled with that one question that everybody struggles with, why? Why me? There was still nothing that separated him from the love of his God. And then we ask, can anyone honestly find fault in Jesus? Can anyone find fault in him? Not one person can find fault in him. And no matter how hard the world tries, because they do try, they attack Jesus all the time. But not honestly. Not truthfully. None can find fault in the one who redeems us. Think for a moment when Jesus was tried before Pontius Pilate. In Luke 23, verse 4, it tells us, Then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this man. Though Jesus was slandered and though he was told, or or though Pilate was told lies about Jesus, by the very people that Jesus came to save, It took this Roman to say, I find no fault in this man. In John 19, verses 4 through 6. Again, we find that uh, that Pilate speaks. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Now here's a really an ironic thing. Because Pilate says, "I, I find no fault in him. Yet when Jesus comes out, we know that he's been beaten. And we know that he has had this crown of thorns thrust into his head. I mean, there was no padding. On the crown. It was. Dug into his head. But he found no fault in him. And Pilate saith unto them. Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him. They cried out saying crucify him crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him, and crucify him. For I find no fault in this man. For I find no fault in him. You can go back one chapter to chapter 18 of John, verse 38, I believe. And he said it another time. I find no fault in this man. 
Yet nonetheless, Jesus came to suffer for us and took all the blows, took all the thorns, took all the nail prints, took all the nails into his hands and feet. But no one can find fault in him. Can anyone ever truly and honestly convict Jesus of sin? Don't forget that we're dealing with the person who we call our Redeemer. Can anyone ever truly and honestly convict Jesus of sin? Not one person ever could. Not one person ever could. In fact, Jesus deals with that particular thought in in John chapter 8, verses 46 and 47, when he says, which of you convinceth me of sin? In other words, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Now he's already called them the children of the devil. He's already made it clear that because they're not listening to him, they're obviously of, of another father. And Jesus made it real clean, if I, clean, uh, real clear when he said, If I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He spoke to them the truth. Kind of, remind, kind of reminds me of the way people are treating the President of the United States today. Because he can do no good. Never do any good. Yet, when you think about it, everybody who judges him is a sinner just as he is. Think about that for a moment. And if he says something right, if he says something good, if he says some truth, the comeback is always, that's a lie. Interesting, I'm not trying to compare <laughs> President Trump with, with Jesus, but the, the fact of the matter is we do it all the time. Man does it all the time. And it makes us wonder, do people listen to God's words? The ones who say that they believe in God. The ones who say that they believe in Jesus. Jesus was very clear. He said, he that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. So really the, the the question here is are you hearing God's word? Are you hearing God's words? The scriptures. Are you hearing them and are you doing them? Because it isn't just a matter of hearing. It is a matter of doing. What a powerful statement that Jesus declared in Luke chapter 6 in verses 46 to 49. Where Jesus said, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why do you call me Lord? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them. Notice that. It would be easy just to say, he who hears my sayings. You hear them, you receive them into your ears, into your mind, and, you know, and have a mental ascent to those things that the Lord says. But unless they get into your heart, and the things that he says is really causing us to go do those things. Then we're far from being where God wants us to be. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built 
a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell. The ruin of that house was great. So the very fact is that our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer was fully equipped to confront the enemy on our behalf. Jesus Christ is fully equipped to confront the enemy on our behalf. Go back to Jeremiah, if you will, uh, chapter 31, verse 11. Jeremiah 31, verse 11 says, For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He has redeemed Jacob. He has redeemed Israel. Here's the use, the, the use of the word Yaakov, you know, the, the supplanter, as it were. Uh, reveals certainly the heart of, of Israel at the time. But he says, for the Lord has redeemed Yaakov, or Jacob, and ransomed him. Redeemed, bought back, ransomed him from, from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Well, has, has not Jesus done the very same for us? Has not the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us and ransomed us, paid the price for us from the hand of him that was stronger than us, who kept us blind, who kept us weak, the enemy of our souls? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, it says, for as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, and this is dealing now with the price that was paid for our redemption, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the payment. That was the price. With the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, a pure, perfect lamb, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Manifest in these last times. And then Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 14 says, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, you look at verse 13 and it's, is dealing with the spirit of promise. But he says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. And I'll get back to that particular verse later in reference to it. But it brought, uh, it brings us to, and it brought me in, in putting this together, that, uh, to, that we need to look at verse uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 54 through 58. 1 Corinthians 15. Because of the victory that was won for us on the cross of Jesus Christ for our redemption. Paul said in verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death 
is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, notice this, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You continue on. You continue to serve. You continue to stand. So the question here is, where are the sting and victory of death in the grave? Where are the sting and victory of death in the grave? They're gone. For every believer in Jesus Christ, they are gone. The sting of death is gone. The victory of the grave is gone. Jesus in Bethany when sent a message about his friend Lazarus dying or being very sick. Jesus took his time to get there. And again, you go back to the statement, nothing just happens to a believer. We can't say it just so happened that Jesus decided to spend a couple extra days where he was before he goes to uh, respond to Mary and Martha's request for Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. Jesus waits long enough for Lazarus to die. Happenstance. When Jesus arrives, of course, they're mourning the death of his friend Lazarus. And the sisters come to Jesus. If you had been here, Lord, our brother would be alive. That's faith. That's faith. They they trusted in the power of, of Jesus Christ. But Jesus wanted to go further in their faith and their understanding. You shall see him again in the resurrection. Oh, well, we believe in that, Lord, but we're hurt now. <laughs> in John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Do you believe this, Martha? And the question today is, do you believe this church? Do you believe this? Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Of course, we know what Jesus did. He raised Lazarus from the dead to show who he was, the resurrection. And the life to show that he was the Redeemer. The Redeemer. Now, many Old Testament saints and others, as we're reminded in the book of Hebrews, had a fear of death. 
They had a fear of the unseen world, the fear of the unseen world of the dead, the dark, the nether world. Uh, you'd be amazed at all of the uh, things that were going on, and certainly in times past, and uh, from the very beginning of creation, and, and all of the things that enemy was, was doing to uh, confound the people. Um, they just came to the point of fearing death in all kinds of ways, even though they were to fear the Lord who gives life. They had a fear of death. There are Christians today that have a fear of death. So it brings us to this statement in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, where Paul says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, that's Jesus, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He came and took upon himself flesh. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to succor them that are tempted. In other words, he is able to help them. And only Jesus is able to help those who are tempted. He took on himself flesh. That he might be the faithful high priest. That he might make reconciliation for our sins. That he would suffer. And conquer suffering. And death. And hell. And the enemy. So that he will help us. In our temptation. In our trials. In our sufferings. Folks. This is our Redeemer. This is our Redeemer. This is Jesus. You know, some have taught that these same Old Testament saints, or at least many of them, didn't, didn't believe in the resurrection or didn't have a concept of the resurrection or knew nothing of the resurrection. But consider that 4,000 years ago, or at least oh, more than 4,000 years ago, Job, Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And I shall stand, or he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And then he says, and then I shall see him. That sounds like resurrection to me. How is Job going to see him unless he rises again? Now for a moment, I want you to consider the Goel. The kinsman redeemer that is made clear to us in the books of Numbers. and the book of Ruth. In the person of... Boaz, who is not only a type of Christ as the kinsman redeemer, but who is also of the line of David, which would, of course, bring forth the Messiah. The kinsman redeemer had to be of the same flesh. He had to be of the same blood in order to be that, to be the one that would help and to support and to provide 
for one who needed that provision. The goel could not be appointed. It couldn't be appointed outside of the realm of the flesh and blood of the same family. The kinsman redeemer had to be one of us, in other words. The kinsman redeemer had to be one of us to redeem us. And so as we read in Hebrews, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. How is he going to die? He has to put on flesh. And wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. The only difference is without sin. Our Redeemer was without sin. And what Jesus did when he took upon himself flesh was he bought back, bought back the inheritance that was taken from us when Adam gave it up in the garden, when he sinned. And it had to be bought back. It had to be bought back. Consider 1 Peter 1. Verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It had to be bought back who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Folks, that inheritance is ours again. That inheritance is ours again, and it cannot be taken away. That is clear from the scripture. It cannot be taken away. And that is why Job could say in Job, Job 19, verses 25 through 27, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. F- folks, do you see that? I mean, he's dead. When his, when his body now succumbs to the, to, the, to the skin worms, as it were. Yet in my flesh shall I see God. Whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold and not another. Though my reins be consumed within me, I shall see God. Now, one of the most important scriptures in the book of Job is one that we're we're not all that familiar with uh, as a significant verse. It's Job 9, verse 33. I'll put some context to this in a moment, but the verse says this. It says, Neither is there any daysman betwixt us or between us that might lay his hand upon us both. Now, just to set this up, Job is crying out because of the condition that he finds himself in. And what was that condition? Well, his miserable comforters, who were supposed to be his friends, had accused him of hypocrisy and hiding some hidden sin. In effect, his buddies told Job he was getting what he deserved. And that was quite heavy for him to be hearing for all of this time that this was going on in their conversation. 
You're just getting what you deserve. They passed judgment on him. They tried and convicted Job in their own court. And in their eyes, Job was as guilty as he could ever be. But Job knew his walk with God. Now, folks, if we learn anything from this little passage, this is what we need to understand. We need to know our walk with God. First of all, we need to know that we have a walk with God. So we better have a walk with God. But understand this. Job knew his walk with God. He knew that there was something about his relationship with the Lord that just didn't fit all the circumstances. So he cries out. And let's add a couple of verses here. Verse 33 again. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. How do we make, you know, sense of that? Well, first of all, let's consider the daysman. The daysman refers to the fact that the day of the court and trial had arrived. We need to understand the culture of that time. It was the culture of the Middle East, in most of the Middle East. But the day came. You know, trial was only supposed to be done in the day, so it was called the day. Court. The day of the court, the day of the trial. And there was a daysman there. One person who would stand between the two as an umpire or an arbitrator. That's the daysman. Between two unsettled factions. He would lay each of his hands on both. One hand on one, one hand on the other. And by consent of each party, both parties had a consent in the daysman. But the daysman would be fair in whatever ruling was to be given. And so that one person would stand between the two as an umpire, an arbitrator, to judge between them and to settle their differences. Well, to make this long story short, when Job says in verse 34, let him take his rod away from me, he's speaking about God. He's speaking about God. And he fears the Lord's immense power. Let not his fear terrify me. And what Job was saying in effect here in this passage was, oh, that there would be a daysman, a daysman, a mediator that could lay his hands on both this feeble man as well as on God. Oh, that there would be one who could lay his hand on man and on God. Because you see, the real contention, if if you will, was between man and God. Well, my dear family, there's only one that fits that bill. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. He's the only one that can be called the true daysman. And you can go back to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, when he says, For there is one God 
and one mediator between God and man. There's the picture. One mediator between God and man. Or, the, or men. The man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. That's, a, that's an essential statement. Paul is not denigrating in any way the deity of Jesus Christ. But what he is saying is that Jesus Christ took upon himself flesh for this very purpose. To be able to stand between man and God as the mediator. And it says in verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all. That's our Redeemer. To be testified in due time. So let's get back to God and his rod for just a moment. Job was complaining that he could not meet God on fair terms. As long as God deals with men on the basis of his almighty power, can anyone simply approach God? Remember what God said to Moses, you know, you, you know I'm not going to allow you to see my glory because, you know, you'll die. I'll let you see the backside of my glory. But God is holy. Isaiah could only see God in the vision that God gave him in Isaiah chapter 6. High and lifted up, his train filling the temple. The angels uh, singing around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Can anyone simply approach God? See, that's the question. Can anyone simply approach God? Can we approach God by his power, in his power, in his righteousness, in his holiness, in his being, and in his essence? In that respect, we have to understand that God is unapproachable that way. He can't be reached. He can't be found. So there's only one that can take us to this powerful almighty God, and that is his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Now understand that Job had a pretty good concept 2,000 years before Jesus' incarnation, didn't he? That God and man must communicate. But how can a holy and almighty God communicate with a sinful creature like me? In Job 16, and again, this is just to substantiate this understanding. But in Job 16, verse 18, he said, Job said, O earth, cover not thou my blood. Let me, or let my cry have no place. Also now behold my witnesses in heaven. My record is on high. My friends scorn me. But mine eye poureth out tears unto God. And then he says, Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God. Job knew his condition before the Lord. He knew that God was the only one that knew Job's condition. I mean, his three friends didn't have a clue. So Job pleads his case with God. And in effect, what he says is, God must support me against God. God must support me. Against God. How can that be? Well, John makes that clear for us in one simple statement. In 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, he said, My little children, these things I write, uh, write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's how it's done. That's how it's done. And when you think about it, there's no higher court than that. Where Jesus is our advocate, where he is our goel, where he is our propitiation, where he is our redeemer, and where he is our daysman. Listen, there are plenty of Eliphazes and Bildads and Zophars. By the way, those are the three friends of Job. There are plenty of those around. They're everywhere. They are know-it-alls that have quick answers for all the world's problems. And yours too. (laughs) They judge, they try, they convict you without understanding the complexities and unknowns of your life and, and, and of life in general. Because life isn't a simple thing. We are warned not to judge according to appearances and certainly we're, we're told not to condemn. But if you're going to condemn, put your money where your mouth is. That's known as a surety. That's known as a bond or a guarantee. Now, usually that's given to try to help somebody who's in trouble. And these three friends knew that Job was in trouble. But they just condemned him. They just said, your, your problem is you, Job. You, you're the sinner here. You have sins you've kept from God or something. Sin is keeping you. What great judges they were. So Job has to say to them, in a sense, he says, look, if you're here to help me, then put your money where your mouth is. Job 17, verse 3, he says exactly that. He says, lay down now. Put me in a surety with thee. You're going to help me? Put a bond down for me. Put a surety down, a guarantee. With thee. Who Who is he that will strike hands with me? But who can do that? And who has done that for us? Who has become that for us? Well, Hebrews 7.22 says that Jesus has. Because he said there, Paul says in in, uh, Hebrews 7.22, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. He was made a surety of a better testament. Jesus is our security. He's our surety. He's our guarantee. He's the arbiter of the new covenant. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. His death confirmed and authorized the new covenant. And the new covenant or testament cannot come into power and being without the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now he's the surety of the better covenant and testament. The law could not do it. Jesus could. And Jesus has given us two things. He has given us, first of all, the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance. What I mentioned in Ephesians 1 verse 14. The Holy Spirit. He has given us the Holy Spirit before the redemption of the purchased possessions. Or purchased possession that is the Lord living in you. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should have the, the Spirit not only with you and upon you, but in you. He is given to us as a, as a guarantee of that purchased possession, our redemption. Secondly, he's given us the surety of the New Testament. The surety, the bond, the security, the guarantee, a better testament. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better testament. So in effect, God the Son pleads with God the Father for our case. Simply, God pleads with God for our case. And it brings Job now to a place where after Job was given an opportunity to say what was on his heart, the Lord then says, Job, now you shut up and you listen. You listen. And this was also for his friends who spoke with, much, with, with no knowledge whatsoever. He says, where were you? When I created the heavens and the earth, where were you? When I put the stars in the sky, where were you? You listen now. You have nothing to say. And the response of Job to that is found at the beginning of Job 42, the last chapter of this wonderful book. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I, underst- that I understood not. He confesses, wow. I uttered that which I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee, And declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Look at this. But now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself. And repent in dust and ashes. When a person who knows himself to be a perfect and upright man. Not not that he calls himself that from chapter 1 but knows that he has that kind of a relationship with God and has gone through every struggle and trial and tribulation and temptation through all of those years from losing everything to that place where he now meets face to face with God and God speaks to him. The only response for a person who is complete, perfect, and upright is to say, I abhor myself. I realize what I am in the presence of a holy God. Repent in dust and ashes. He humbled himself. The only thing we can do as believers in Jesus Christ is humble ourselves when we come to the realization of how great he is as our Redeemer. I hope and pray we've, we've peeled back the onion a little bit here to understand the depth 
of the wonders of Jesus as our Redeemer. We need to know these things in the days and times in which we're living. And as I get ready to close here, I want to have you listen to the words of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Because certainly the friends of, of, of Job condemned him for his, you know, for his personal sins that they said were, what, were the reasons why he suffered the way he did. But I want you to read this and hear this. It's Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. And we close with this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. Who is he that condemneth? See, Jesus condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is a good time for us to check our hearts and to check our walk. How are we walking today? Are we walking by the Spirit or by the flesh? Are we walking according to the circumstances of, of the days today? You know, we're all taking certain precautions, and wisely so. But still, that doesn't get us out of the fact that we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling as believers in Jesus Christ. We are to walk in the Spirit and in the love and in the grace and in the mercy and in the truth of our Lord Jesus. And we need to be declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that are hurting, to those that right now are in fear of their lives, in fear of a, even a germ on a door handle. I mean, it may sound crazy, but that's how fearful things have gotten for people. But the Lord did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power. Precautions? Yes, take them. But serve the Lord. Be used of God. Be used of God now. We're his vessels. We're to be vessels in his hand to those who need Jesus right now. And again, as I said earlier on, it's not about Jesus coming soon. It's about Jesus coming at any moment. And we need to be ready. And let us be able to say today, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day. Upon the earth, and though my skin, and though after my skin worms destroy this body yet in my flesh, shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold, and not another. Though my reins be consumed within me, I know that my Redeemer lives.